0: So the first thing is, if you want to have a great impact on your team, you got to go inside yourself. The greatest impact you're going to have on others is by having greater clarity of who you are, how you want to show up, and doing the inner work that brings out the best of you. Well, the best of you is going to impact others a lot better than the worst of you trying to change them.
1: Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Glow Podcast. Elazar Aslan's views on leadership may make you question how you define what it means to be a leader. A business consultant, entrepreneur, executive advisor, and co-author of the new book, Boundless Leadership, he has found that effective leadership is really about what is going on inside the leader. As a leader, you must be willing to lead yourself into a never-ending journey of optimizing your inner condition. He admits that not every leader is willing to do that sort of intense inner work. As he said in our interview, the deeper reason that most of us don't wanna do the inner work is because we spend so much time packing that stuff into a box and putting the box in a closet and locking the closet with chains. His work with business clients and also the focus of his book is to help us feel safe enough in life to flip from wanting to change others to wanting to change ourselves and to pivot away from traditional stress-fueled leadership styles to a kind of leadership that focuses on co-creating psychologically safe and meaningful relationships at work. This interview is a companion piece to my interview with Dr. Joe Loitzo, who co-wrote Boundless Leadership with Elazar. You can find a link to my interview with Joe on the GLOW website at glo.com slash podcast. And we'll also put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elizar Aslan. Hi, Elizar. So wonderful to be here with you today, and I'm so excited about this conversation.
0: Thank you, Derek. Thank you for having me. I, I too, am looking forward to sharing this information and, and seeing where it goes. Yeah. Before we start, actually, Derek, um, what might be helpful for me is to... Um, understand why you started um these podcasts like what, what's your interest or intention behind that so i started glow which was yoga glow
1: initially back in 2008 and so we've been at this now for a while and yeah over the years i would come across very interesting people sometimes quite eccentric people and I'd have these conversations that I often thought, oh, you know, I should have captured that. Like that would have been (laughs) really cool. Like if maybe not the whole thing, but like nuggets here and there, if people heard them, not only would it help maybe shed some light on some of my worldview and how I, you know, ideas that I respect and want more and more people to know about, but that it would highlight some people that maybe are not necessarily uh, famous or Mm Uh, you know have a lot of likes or social followers and so it's something i've wanted to do for a long time and i for I have a bunch of excuses i one of which uh, addicted to kind of being busy and so many other things uh, that I allowed for my own sense of self worth and adequacy, allowed being wrapped up with being in certain work streams or uh, being parts of of certain processes. And yeah, that would probably be the biggest excuse as to why I never got around to it. And so I've also wanted Glow to address much broader issues as it pertains to how to be a better human and our future content direction Is heading that way. So I, I was introduced to the word yoga in a college philosophy class where we studied parts of Rig Veda, various Upanishads, the whole Bhagavad Gita, uh, and some other texts that people don't normally hear about. And I was introduced to yoga as really uh, a process of virtuosity in being oneself. And There's a pretty big gap between that and how the word yoga and even mindfulness uh, Mm -hmm. is understood Mm -hmm. today. And so given that, I always imagined that GLOW would address and teach with much greater precision, a broader set of skills and competencies that support well-being for those looking for guidance on the journey of a deeper understanding of oneself, addressing emotional and psychological health. So that's where we're heading, and we wanted the podcast to be the beginning of that, and we've been self-funded all these years, and so this is really the the beginning of that. On our podcast, uh, Lisa and I have been testing different topics to see uh, relative performance between episodes, and what we're seeing is that our listeners seem to benefit from guests who are authorities or subject matter experts who are sharing information and actionable advice all under the heading of health and wellness or well-being in general. But, you know, me in particular, I, I have, I have a very strong resonance with the material that you and Dr. Lloyd wrote about and, uh, it's very personal for me because I know what it's like to have been part of creating a very toxic workplace culture and having gone through that journey of learning that trying to change others didn't work. And so (laughs) getting to that point of despair and a major dead end, realized that only by addressing my interior life, my own unaddressed stuff, would there be any possibility for systemic, cultural, organizational change. And I've learned that that can be done in parallel with organizational change. Uh, It's going to take a long time, along with... A lot of patience and compassion but it's worth it absolutely Uh, as a side note i don't know if we'll include any of this in the interview but maybe we will i first read i don't know if you uh have heard of fred kaufman yeah so I, i first read conscious business i think back in 2009 or 2010
0: right right
1: and my very ineffective method of leadership at the time because as i told myself at the time I was too busy being sleep deprived getting stuff done uh the uh underlying subconscious inner narrative w- w- was saying in part there's no time for anything other than answering customer support tickets, doing product development, paying bills, things like editing video, cleaning the floors, you know, all the things just whatever needed tending to. So I would simply hand out that book and say, uh, please read this. Let's try to be like this together, you know, in, in so many words, (laughs) so it wasn't until much later, uh, where we, um, operationalized like who we want to be and how we want to be and set up all the systems and processes that support that way of being and core values and, um, you know, all the end to end people ops stuff from. A well-structured onboarding to offboarding to to exit interview uh, and everything in between, and so I have firsthand experience with how extremely difficult this is, mm-hmm. but also how incredibly rewarding it is when you can get to a point where you're working with people not from as you say that stress reactivity state, but rather mm-hmm. more in a flow state. We still have a lot of work to do in terms of supporting and scaling that. And there's always this exciting opportunity for cultural improvement and iteration as a team. But I'm very proud of the changes we're making and the direction that we're heading in. So back to the process of pivoting away from a culture of stress reactivity and moving towards flow. You and Dr. Lloyds have spend about two hundred and fifty pages unpacking what that means along with practices and how to get there. Oh my how to be uh, in that never-ending process that there is no final end point it's just being in the ring <laughs> and rumbling together and and, and all trying right. to contribute positively um, so anything you want to ask about that before i kind of move into the my introduction and well, oh, no i
0: i actually first want to uh, thank you for your awareness and and your courage. It's it's a unfortunately it's still a pioneering field, and certainly was in two thousand nine. So to be able to say I see something different and I'm going to try it, even if the trying was I'm going to read this book and hand hand it out, <laughs> you know, still a step in the right direction. So you know, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I mean, this idea that we're going to change things by changing others um, is something that's ingrained in us. Uh, So it's not an intuitive thing to um, do differently, Mm -hmm. right? But you don't have to run a business to know you can't really change all you need is a partner in your life. And you realize very quickly, (laughs) (laughs) you're not going to change them so easily. So uh, this idea of being in any kind of a relationship, and of course, business is nothing other than a Form of um, you know structured relationships, and getting the understanding that you can get to where you want to get to um, by changing your focus, and it's it's a flip that uh, you know. And in, in in my work with my clients, uh, I just talk about a series of flips. They're all flips, you know. They're big flips and small flips, but we kind of got it you know, as we grow up in a, in a confused way of how it works. So the first thing is, if you want to have a great impact on your team, you got to go inside yourself. The greatest impact you're going to have on others is by having greater clarity of who you are, how you want to show up, and doing the inner work that brings out the best of you. Well, the best of you is going to impact others a lot better than the worst of you trying to change them right? And we end up with the worst of us when we're trying to change them because they resist the change. When they resist the change, we just push harder. When we push harder, we start being an us and them because they don't want to change. And we're just pushing really hard and angry that they're not changing. Okay. Well, that's (laughs) just not going to work too well, right? And unfortunately, because we're so conditioned in our upbringing that that's what we should do, no matter what the data set, you know, our personal experiences, we just don't give up that strategy, it's just we get rid of the people because they're not changing. It's them, you know, so that's, um, you know, one insight.
1: And then it all reoccurs with the next round of people.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah, I, I really appreciate that in your book, you, from the beginning, you you go to, you mentioned earlier, going inside oneself. And mm-hmm. there's early on, you say, you know, that this work i.e. boundless leadership and being in the, the process that you uh, introduce in your book is not predicated upon more skills or better command of business principles, but rather upon an unrelenting pursuit of optimizing the inner conditions, the way of being, underlying our thoughts, feelings, and actions. And not everyone wants to talk about the inner conditions in a business no. environment.
0: I'm glad you bring that about the book, Derek, because you know the book was structured on a program. The program is about change. So the book is really about a very methodical approach to change. and its focus on, not just your mind as a leader, but your mind, your heart, and your body. And inside of each one of these disciplines or particular traits we want to build, like self-awareness for the mind, you know, authentic engagement for the heart, you know, and body flow for the for the body. And underneath of those are competencies, and each of the competencies are broken down into four qualities, and each of the qualities have very precise practices. And in each discipline is a very particular application, like empowered responsibility is is the discipline of heart. So the idea is for you to change. The idea is for you to methodically, step by step, show up at work or show up at home a different way uh, in a way that suits you and serves you and and those around you, but also to have these applications you could use. Right off the bat, once you have some deeper understanding, practices you use on a daily basis, and um, so, so we're really proud because we've seen it impact people's lives, and we call it boundless leadership so that you're free of your limitations, your self-imposed false beliefs. That's what makes you boundless, but the word leadership, I just want to be clear, is every one of us is a leader of self right every one of us leads ourselves in our lives who we are that we're being a leader of me so it's the same principles whether you're that or leader of a 10,000 person organization um so yeah and having seen people's lives change it's like we got to get the book out that's really what's what was the impetus behind it completely that so i'm curious how in your work as a coach how do you invite people who
1: might not want to go to the realm of the interior life or address inner demons, as you say in your book, to create change, to help them navigate all of that. And before you answer that, can you share with us your background and the kinds of people and companies you work with?
0: Sure. Sure. Happy to. So yeah, let me tell you a little bit about how I got to where I am and where that is. You know, I started my career in a very classic way. I got my MBA. I went to Fortune 50 companies, Kraft Foods and American Express, and then ADP. That's has been about 12 years. Um, And, you know, my thought was I wanted to be close to the center of gravity because that's where decisions are made and you could have a lot of influence. Um, But then I realized over that decade that Really, the C-suite that is where the center of gravity is, is a lot more accessible from the outside by consultants and agencies than it is really on the inside from the, you know, employees, certainly, you know, managers, uh, manager levels. And so I I went and created my own uh, agency, my own marketing consulting uh, firm. And I had much more access to the C level and senior executives of, of the companies I was working with, and that's when I realized that uh, the limiting factor. Of course, we we know that the leader has a lot to do with where the company goes. Right, that that's what leadership's all about. But what I didn't realize until I was working so closely with all these leaders is that the limiting factor, the governor, where the Company goes is the inner demons of the leader. It's not the leader's school, not their MBAs, not their previous experience. Those things are factors, but the real the real core uh, limiting factor is. Um, their own limiting beliefs their own coping mechanisms their own you know issues with things that aren't sitting well with themselves and as leaders they have this margin of error to take it out on others you know we we talked uh, you know right before about this idea of well if it doesn't work because the employee isn't doing what you want and you can't change him. You just fire them and start all over again. And, you know, it was, it, it was actually a very um, uh, f- fundamental meeting. I remember to this day when I was working with a client as a consultant and he was looking for support through his HR system. What kind of HR rules do we set up? Because these people aren't working. And I was thinking, well, you know, <laughs> they're not working for you over and over again. So maybe they're not the problem. I, I didn't know how to say that at the time, but I realized, okay, how do we solve that problem? If I wanted to be at the core of the center of gravity, then it's really about helping these individuals see the, their own limiting beliefs, their own biases, the things that makes them not as successful as they could be. Let me help them work on that. So that's what I do now. I work uh, with individual um, business people, executives, and I work with uh, actual companies as a whole, you know, in their departments. Uh, So some of it is coaching. Some of it uh, is programs, you know, put in a sort of step-by-step, multi-month program inside of an organization. Because I also want to share with you the flip side. Um You know, as this whole conscious business mindful leadership movement gains steam, there are quite a few companies out there whose leaders are mindful and conscious and want to have their organizations be like that, and they are also limited in having their uh, employees and their whole company think the way they do so to your point, Derek, of not everybody wants to do it. Not everybody wants to do it, even when the leader is saying, this is what we're going to do. Still, not everybody wants to do it, right? So, your question of how do I work with my clients, because if the real change is from within, and people don't want to go within, then how do you bring about the change? Um, So one well, one major way that I uh, address that is when I work with my clients, I let them know that you know issues come at three levels. There's the uh, on the surface, there's below the surface, and then there's on the ocean floor. Above the surface is usually where the conversation takes place because it's a conversation around actions. What should I do? He said this, and she said that, and I need to do this. Those are conversations above the surface. But what really affects those actions are the attitudes and interpretations and the mindset that sits below the surface. And those mindsets, though, can be shifted, are fundamentally um, affected by or, or conditioned by our core beliefs, our worldview. And what happens is that on the surface is very accessible and people are very comfortable having conversations on the surface about actions. But you're going to have the same conversation over and over again if you're not addressing some of its causes, which sits below the surface. So let's call that the mindset. The mindset is not as accessible as the logistics, those conversations, but still pretty accessible and can affect the actions. On the ocean floor where your belief sits, that's the root cause of it all. If you can change something from your core belief, you never have to deal with it again because you dealt with it at its root. So as effective and as powerful as that is, it's not so accessible. It's like deep sea diving and not everybody is a scuba diver. Uh, So where the Optimal place to work where the accessibility and the impact are at its highest level is below the surface. Actions are very accessible, but they're not enough because you're going to repeat your patterns. Below the surface gives you a lot of leeway, and you can actually change the options that are available. And it takes a little bit of work, but it's doable. And if necessary, and if you're able, and if you're willing there are times you can touch the ocean floor because it's the client that says, Oh my God, I've been doing this all my life. I did this in eighth grade. You know, and when they bring that up, they're bringing up a core belief. Uh, so, uh, I steer them towards below the surface where the mindset is something we can play with. They steer me to the ocean floor when they want. And, you know, we, um, then work with wherever it's, it's doable. I just want to be clear, because I, I don't want to suggest that one is good and one is bad. You know, actions take place above the surface, and without actions, it's all just talk. So you do need to have those conversations. The mindset really drives your action. So without going there, you're really handicapping yourself at a great level. And if you ever want to uproot it, go to the, you know, ocean floor. But there's not to say that you really need to only be in one place. You really should touch all as is accessible to you. And the last thing I would say is um, most of us don't want to do inner work because most of us have not been trained that that's where the gold is. So that's one reason we don't want to do inner work. So that's just a resetting of of expectations and understanding. But the deeper reason that most of us don't want to do inner work is because we spend so much time, you know, packing the stuff in a box and putting the box in a closet and locking the closet with chains. Why the hell would we want to go there, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the fundamental reason that many of us don't want to do the inner work is to say, oh, that's to be hidden. So it's really uh, critical that in any kind, it's really true for any relationship, but certainly in a coaching relationship, that there's a sense of safety. There's a sense of safety that the client can go, I won't be judged when I tell you I'm a coward, you know, and that, and here's a little tip um, just to share with your audience, because it takes uh, sometimes years before a client can, can hear this from me whatever client I've ever worked with, and most of them are very successful clients. At some point, there's a level of trust. And they kind of whisper to me, Elazar, if you want to know the truth, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm going to be found out. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, I know. Every one of my clients says that. So this idea that you have this dark, oozing, shameful, green-eyed, toxic stuff sitting in your closet, and you think you're the only one with that, that is a misunderstanding. That's a confusion. We all have those closets full of that stuff. And when you put it out, it's never really as bad as you kept thinking it was. Or when you locked it up 20 years ago when you were a kid thinking that nobody should ever know about this. So allowing people to feel safe, to understand that their shameful, dark secrets are really no different than everybody else's shameful, dark secrets. And having the safety that they're not going to be judged takes it a long way. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the motivation is I don't, it's not working for me the way it is. What do I need to do to make it different, to make it better, to make it lighter, to make it more joyous, less anxiety, less stress, less worry every day? I want to be alive. I want to be free. Open the closet and you will be free. So that motivation on top of the safety and allowing them to go by levels as works for them usually is a good, good package.
1: Yeah. I have, about a, I have about a page of notes just as you spoke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I started thinking about Robert Bly's, the American poet, his little book on mm-hmm. the, the human shadow. Yeah. He talks about the bag that we all carry and yeah you're right when i you mentioned the word flips earlier and I, i'm curious what mm-hmm. you mean by that when i started to i don't know if this is what you meant by it when i started to, to enter that flip from wanting to change others to wanting to change myself and wanting to go to the ocean floor to find that gold uh, part of that flip was facilitated by not just the individual work with therapists and, and coach, but also in group leadership work. And to see, as you said, mm-hmm. and I appreciate so much you saying that because I know for a fact, if someone's wrestling with imposter syndrome or thinking like I'm gonna be found out and living with that fear day to day, that they're going to be, that hearing that from you is massively helpful. Like when I saw that others mm-hmm. are wrestling with, some of the very same fears and insecurities and self-doubts that uh, I was wrestling with and still do, uh, just in a less charged way, right. uh, that that was extremely helpful to be right. seen and to, to, to see others in that way. And to yeah. crack myself open in terms of, of vulnerability and receptiveness mm-hmm. or receptivity uh, was key,
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. key Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. not only
1: my own personal uh, transformation or beginning of transformation, uh, but also to those around me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you say that because um, there's a lot of power, uh, but there's two aspects uh, to that group sharing that, that you mentioned. One is exactly what you said, which is to find out you're not alone. Okay. So these dark secrets or shameful things or worries that you don't feel you can share with other people and you hear somebody else sharing and you go, oh my God, you too? I'm not alone. That that in itself is freeing. Mm-hmm. But there's a second aspect that is more subtle uh, and as important, if not more important in affecting change inside of you. Very few of us uh, tend to really be heard or seen that often, and if you're in a right group setting that is safe, so when you share, and you're not judged, and people actually, you know, hold you with with even greater closeness when you share these, you know, deep secrets, if you will, and you not only are not judged, but are accepted. In your most vulnerable, that is incredibly healing, incredibly healing. And all this work is nothing other than just healing the wounds that have already been been there. There's nothing other than that. And this is why we go back to what we were saying before. Which one of us has made it to this point without deep wounds somewhere in a few places, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that's all it is. And and it's really important to do group work for those reasons we said but another reason that is, is related to this healing through acceptance by other is that typically as a society, especially in the West, this isn't as true in the East, though it's not untrue, but it's definitely core to the Western cultural uh, society, is we tend to be our own worst critic. So, if we're constantly sitting on our own wounds and saying, come on, what's wrong with you? Let's go again. You know, couldn't you have done that better? Oh my God, she beat you to it. What's wrong? So, like, we're constantly judging ourselves, trying to push ourselves to better performance. No healing can take place in that. So unfortunately, we don't know how to give it to ourselves, which what why the group becomes so so much more important, because somebody else is able to give it to us, just like we're able to give it to them. We just don't know how to give it to ourselves. So hopefully another thing that happens is not just the healing that takes place there, but the modeling that you can then do with yourself to say it's okay. It's okay. Nobody's wrong here. Everybody's doing the best they can, and the best just isn't perfect. That's all. Our parents weren't so bad. I mean, maybe they did bad things for whatever reason, but it wasn't like they were mean about it. They just didn't know any better. We're not. We're, it's just allowing the physics of an imperfect world to be accepted as a non-personal set of events. Nobody's to blame. We're just there to make it better. So that aspect of healing, which is core for the inside work, really shines in, in those group settings.
1: Yeah, and I think you're referring to the types of standard trauma that aren't on the far end of the spectrum, which are just incredibly awful and egregious trauma that, and, and incredibly damaging trauma that can be inflicted upon a child, say, for example— I think what you're referring to is more the standard run of the mill traumas that uh, comes with being a human.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately not enough of, of us have escaped the deeper traumas. I mean, it's it's just whether it's uh sexual in nature, physical in nature, emotional in nature, that level of abuse does does exist. Yeah. And the path of healing tends to be the same, but the margin of error gets tighter, right? If the trauma is deeper. Um, I'll just share very personally, um, you know, my wife and I adopted some some two uh, teenage girls uh, from Colombia who pretty much lived their lives in an orphanage. And working with them to help them feel safe in this world, when you get insight, into the level of trauma that they have experienced is just mind-boggling. But at the same time, you get such a deep appreciation for the resilience of the human mind and soul, because really we're talking soul here. And to know what it can take and still emerge is just a beautiful thing, you know, just a beautiful thing. Mm. Um, So like I said, the process is... Pretty much the same, just the intensity and the margin of error, the level of professionalism is different. But, but I do want to say one last thing with it, Derek, just you know, for many of us. I, I spend much of my life saying I uh, had great parents. They were not abusive. They didn't put cigarettes out of my back. They didn't leave me in the middle of the night. I had great parents. You know? So I don't have that trauma. So it made it more personal, like what's wrong with me? because I really didn't have trauma but the truth of the matter is that you know I was reading once some years ago and it stuck with me that you you lose more water with a dripping uh, sink with a dripping faucet than a whole bathtub in one day you lose more water than having a whole bathtub full of water so we do think of major trauma as this bathtub of event that you could point to that's oh my god right but most of us don't have that but most of us do have leaky faucets Mm -hmm. that day after day hour after hour creates a self-view that's just confused and so we're like kind of walking thinking north is behind us when north is in front of us and we just can't understand why we can't get north and so, you know, hence hence what we're talking about, you know, just a reorientation.
1: I love that imagery, the consistently leaking bathtub faucet, that it's highly likely that all of us experience some type of leakage and the process of being curious about that leakage or multiple leakages and how that impacts our day-to-day. And going back to your mention of our own worst critic, you know, if I can be more critical and judgmental and harsh on myself and my inner dialogue, then I've accomplished being much more intense or uh, damaging to myself than anyone else ever could be. And so I will have already done the worst in anticipation Mm -hmm. of whatever Mm -hmm. external shame and criticism may come.
0: Yeah. That's a very important point, Derek, because so many of us live with this kind of incessant harsh inner critic and we buy it as tough love. So, so there's two aspects to it. One that you mentioned is let me immunize myself by getting there before somebody else, mm-hmm. right? So I can I can handle it because I already, you know, was prepared for it. Um, But the second aspect is is also kind of powerful because I've had several clients, at some point when we're working on their inner critic, in their own words, say the following things. But if I tame my inner critic, how am I going to get out of bed? My inner critic is what drives me to my success. It's like, I mean, I'll probably be some lazy potato couch if I don't have an inner critic pushing me. I'm not sure I want to get rid of my inner critic. Mm-hmm. He's a secret or she's a secret to my success. So, you know, we become uh, attached to that pushing to make us go somewhere. And this is an important conversation. We talk about it in the book because I think both Joe and I see this as a really fundamental discussion for us to understand. And it's a conversation around energy, Right. We all need energy to to make something happen. It takes energy. And if you're trying to have success in a difficult world, inside of a company, among other people trying to be successful, or try and change the world through your organization, it all takes energy. So we need energy. The the thing is that most of us have been raised and fueled by the energy that, that we call fossil fuel right? So you can't get energy from gas and methane and and coal. We do, as a society, get those energies. The issue is that there's always a fallout that cause pollution. They work, but they're not sustainable. They deplete the resources of the earth, um, but they provide energy. Now, Environmentally speaking, there's also renewable energy, clean energy from the sun, from solar, which is sustainable, doesn't deplete the earth and still provides you with the energy to, to get done what you need to get done. So on a human level, what that fossil fuel is, is that fear-based energy that says, I cannot fail. I must succeed. I cannot not be the best because my worth is my performance. So I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. That's energy that drives you. Okay? But it's toxic. It's not sustainable. You will burn out. You might lose your family. You you will not get to happiness that way. It's just not going to happen. So what you do need internally is the sustainable, clean, renewable energy. So if it's not fear that drives us, what is it going to be that drives us? The answer, passion. Passion, what we love, what's in our heart, what's naturally us. And so if that's what we do, if that's what drives us, then even working hard doesn't drain us because it's not covered in that toxic stress, worry, anxiety that even, you know, depletes our performance. So we can perform better with less energy, if you will, that is completely sustainable because it will never deplete the resources called me. So part of the the boundless leadership uh, edict is how do we flip our drive from that toxic, fear-based uh, energy to the more enlivening, uh, uh, nourishing, passion uh, energy. So that's part of the, you know, the, the basis of boundless leadership. That's, that's a flip, by the way, one of the flips you had mentioned. I was just going to ask you, is that what you meant by flip? Right. It's the understanding. Correct. Correct.
1: was hesitating whether or not to share this because uh i typically don't share in this way uh, in these interviews but i was witnessing so i tend to before an interview i tend to experience a certain amount of anxiety of stress-based energy Uh, the 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 amount of energy rather the amount of anxiety that i feel is inversely related to the amount of preparation that i do so if i prepare a Mm -hmm. lot then I will feel less anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, I didn't prepare much for an interview because I had prepared quite a bit for doc- the interview with Dr. so uh, last week. But still, nevertheless, I was witnessing myself leading up to today and even this morning prior to our, mm-hmm. our interview, and I was having this very surreal experience. It was as if whatever aspects of me that want to line up to uh, create this very prepared, robust, rigorous army front of, of tools in order to have this conversation flow very smoothly and intelligently. And, you know, for me to come across as a, as well-informed and, uh, uh, and prepared to lift you up and make you the center of the conversation versus me, the center of the conversation, uh, were firing, we're going off, like mm-hmm. alarm bells mm-hmm. were almost, but the, the it wasn't hooking me as it typically Beautiful. does. It was this it was this really wonderful uh experience of there's this parallel current of alarm bells. You know what, Derek? Like you really you better get your shit together right now because you're about to jump into the ring. And but you're not doing that. You're not doing what you typically do to get ready for one of these what's wrong with you it was I was having for sure this multiplicity of selves moment preparing for this. And I, you know, I, I i don't know where I'm going with this and how I'm going to segue this into something else, but I think.
0: Well, let me jump in if, if I may, because yeah. it, it, I, I mean, first, what, what you just shared is, is, you know, phenomenal uh, awareness. And I, I want the reason I want to comment about it, is because where you were before this interview is alleged that most of us—that's all we need to get to. Many of many of us believe that um, the idea is to never. Have stimuli that affect us or make us anxious or you know worry or there's no performance based stress that you know I'd like to be like that and some people are like that I I presume I don't know what's in their minds that maybe the Dalai Lama is like that you know but so we think that that's the goal but really a very comfortable and and much more helpful alleged than the one we tend to live on is the one that you described, which is no, the anxiety came up, but it didn't, I didn't buy into it. Yeah. I, I watched it. Right. So it's a difference between, you know, watching a horror movie and actually believing that the monsters are going to come get you and seeing, Oh, this is fun to watch. Ha ha ha. It's a movie. It's a completely different experience. So, so too in our life, you know, being able to witness it and therefore not hooked by it is a very powerful position to be in. And we don't need to be at this sort of very fantasy-like view. Oh, I will never have feelings of anxiety or fear or worry. You know, that's my goal. Right. So that's a beautiful place to be at. I'm, I'm so glad you experienced it and were able to share it. Yeah.
1: Thank you. I'm glad you pointed out that the goal is not an eradication of the experience of fear or anxiety. The goal is not to bypass unpleasant feelings. Rather, the goal is to work with them and excavate the gold on the ocean floor while also working with what's above the surface and just beneath the surface. And we're working with this interior realm all the time in our work lives whether we know it or not when i enter into a work context i'm still me i'm the same individual that i was before entering the work context though i may need to turn on or off or attenuate or monitor more closely certain aspects of myself i still bring to the table my history my conditioning my beliefs my biases my privilege my insecurities and so on and so how do you see the role of coach differing from the role of therapist and where do you see the boundary being drawn in a business or a work
0: environment? Yeah, I think for both a coach and a therapist, um, you know, it's, it's going treasure hunting, if you will. I think the approaches might be different. Uh, I find um, as a coach myself, the biggest difference from having worked with different therapists uh, personally is that um, there's more of a. This is a like a trivial word. There's more of a homework approach. You know, like with with therapy, at least my therapists, and I had different. So it's not just one modality. There's a sense of you the the patient driving the conversation. there's a there's a sense of you the patient um, doing it in your own time you know and then there might be different degrees of dialogue with your therapist depending on the type of therapist. But in coaching at least as I do coaching, there is there's a little bit more action oriented so what are we going to do by next week? like there's a specific set of uh, behavior we want to have that uh, is connected to the deeper conversation, but we're not here to understand. We're here to change, which is the goal for both. That's a good point. You know, But, it, it you know, and again, as I mentioned before, it's a coach. It's above the surface, below the surface, and the ocean floor. You use all three interchangeably, depending on the situation, um, whereas therapy tends to want to get to the ocean floor, you know, uh, which is where the root, of of the issues are it just takes longer. is why some people are like, oh my god, it's been two years, and so uh, they both have their their value. But you know, I just want to share how I thought they're they're different. But talking about this work as within business, okay, versus outside of business. So I think you're absolutely uh, correct, Derek. That at the end of the day. It's the same individual. So, whether you're in the office or you're at home, whether you're talking to your boss or you're talking to your partner or you're managing your employees or you're disciplining your kids, it's all the same you. So, um, you know, when you're doing this kind of a inner reflective work, it's going to affect all parts of your life. In fact, I would say to you, um, you know, the strongest testimonial that I have received. And this is like, now it's my gold standard. I try that again. I, I I do generally well to not have this be about my ego, but we all kind of like a very authentic testimonial. And so my gold standard now is we're all human. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Because now I've heard it several times in, in from my clients is when the testimonial comes from my client's Partner, Mm -hmm. tell Elazar he's doing a great job. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, (laughs) you know, because that individual, we're focused at work, of course, but that's the same individual that goes home. Another partner is witnessing somebody who's showing up a little differently at home. So, to your point, it's the same person inside or outside the office. But three things happen inside the office, right? It doesn't change the the principles. It's like, you know, one's driving a car and the other one's driving a truck. They're, They're the same principles on the same roads, but they're slightly different. So what happens at work is in addition to it being about the person, there's slightly more structure around power plays. Oh, my boss can fire me. There is more structure around hierarchy, around it's a pyramid. So one day the music's going to stop and there's one less chair. Who's going to be left standing? Oh, my God, I don't want it to be me. So the 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 pressure inside of business of driving us is a little bit stronger. The other thing that makes business different is that Although it's true, as an individual, we can change the world. And we've seen many individuals throughout history do that. And we could certainly change our family and our neighbors and our community. So there's this ever-growing circle. But inside of a business, we can affect people's livelihood, their view of themselves, who then they go out to their families and their communities with that view of how we help them see Themselves, And then we as a business have different missions that affects what we do. The products we sell affect uh, consumers in different ways. The way we resource those products affects the planet. So if we're shifting ourselves, it's the same person in and out of work. So that doesn't change. But if we're doing it inside of business, it has a slightly wider impact because business is businesses as a whole have so much power and impact in society both in how we treat our workers and how we treat our customers and what our mission is between you know profitability versus you know giving back to communities it it's just it's massive so it, it just changes the the weight but it doesn't change the essence
1: yeah the stakes are high yeah for this yeah yeah yeah, that's one of my favorite pieces of feedback from some of the work that we're doing internally with our team is when a particular team member says, "You know, my wife really, yes. thanks, Glow, for the work that we're doing
0: here." That's so beautiful, isn't it? It truly yeah. really is. You yeah, know, I,
1: and I, I said this in the the interview with Dr. Lloyd. So I've you, know, you write about heroism uh, briefly in the book, and you know that being an ordinary person in extraordinary situation uh, that we don't have to be special to inspire we have to be in a special place within our nervous system and Mm -hmm. that's it's it's, you know a way of leading without needing to impress or intimidate and uh i said it then and i want to say it again i've seen some of the uh, more uh, courageous acts of heroism you know via team members you know who uh, have taken and are taking the journey of sitting in that fire of uncomfortable vulnerability Mm -hmm instead of uh what you're referring to is um, existing uh, within or being driven by that stress charged energy of shame yeah. anger and fear yeah 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 i want to drill down on fear a little bit uh you know something that you know i think as teams are in this kind of liminal transition phase you know you can imagine mm-hmm. on one end of the spectrum uh, a more fully realized of what you're referring to. And then on the other end of the spectrum, a you know, completely unconscious culture. And then, um, you know, as, as a team evolves and, and endeavors to do this work, you're gonna have different people evolving at different paces or different speeds. Mm-hmm. And typically the fear of being found out ultimately has in it encoded the likelihood that you're going to self-sabotage. Like you're going to, because of that fear, you're going to create the very conditions or situation that you fear might happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so one of the things that we try to work with is how do we create the conditions to allow that particular individual to fear less being found out? Because Mm -hmm, by hiding mm -hmm. the thing that one is hiding, it will likely Mm -hmm, come to the mm -hmm. surface anyway at some point. And so why don't we just have the conversation before that happens?
0: Yeah, Uh, and even if it doesn't come up to the surface, it is uh, limiting what you can do Mm -hmm. because you're spending that energy hiding it. Um, So everybody's at a different place. And even the same person is at a different place on a different day, right? Yeah. So th- this thing is not so so linear. Right. Um, and but what you said you said something that's very powerful. You said you know creating the conditions, right? So that's our job as a leader to create the conditions. It's not our job to change the people. Right. It's our job to provide the support that they need to make the change that they want. right? So we need to understand both our power and have humility over our limitations in in the situation. The second thing is that, in my experience, one of the most powerful ways of creating conditions is modeling. Mm -hmm. And so if we can be honest and vulnerable ourselves, people really kind of hear that and it allows them to take a little bit more risk to be a little bit more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But again, we're not telling them to be vulnerable. We're inviting them to feel safe enough to be vulnerable. And I I just want to pause there because the thing I just said, if I were to say anything to leaders, I've been consulting And I've been coaching two very different ways of working with leaders, startup companies, corporations, nonprofits. It doesn't make a difference. The number one thing, the most powerful thing you can do as a leader is to create a sense of safety in your organization. If you can create the condition of safety, then everything else will naturally flow towards what is possible and not what we need to be careful of. It'll just happen naturally. It is the lack of sense of safety that causes us to shut down, put on our masks, and behave in ways that are very self-protective and therefore, by definition, not communal, because it's about me and not us. Safety takes that all away. Right, um, but I do want to say one one third point, Derek, because I think this is on the good news side of things. Many times, uh, clients, especially if they're CEOs and and leaders of large organizations, say, "How do I how do I change them?" the work you and I have done is so great, but how do you do it to them? (laughs) I want to change the whole organization, right? It's a thousand people. I'm going to change a thousand people. Yeah. Well, the good news is, and I'm going to share numbers with you, but I have to tell you, this is purely anecdotal. This is my numbers, Mm -hmm. okay? But these are numbers that seem to have held throughout the years with different data points from different perspectives. The thing is, you don't have to change them all. You just need to change 20% of them. Hmm. 60% of them will follow. And the other 20% don't belong with where you're going.
1: we will typically You self, just have to let them go. Out.
0: They'll self so mostly will self select out and sometimes you kind of want to encourage them if yeah. if needed, you know. But don't worry, the the the, the 60% majority is not yours to change. They will follow when that 20% does the change. And it's not hierarchical. It's right. not, I got to do it from the top. No, you just got to do 20%. Uh,
1: we could do a whole interview just on that topic. And, and, yeah, you know, be- there have been several of those topics. <laughs> yeah, several of those topics. And I think fear
0: just by itself is a big topic. Yes.
1: Yeah. I want to stay on psychological safety for a moment. I think you're referring to Dr. Amy Edmondson's psychological safety, which was made popular by Google's Project Aristotle, and also I highly recommend Dr. Edmondson's recent book, The Fearless Organization. That I found that that term is easily misunderstood, which she's also written extensively about that, how easily it's misunderstood, and I'll, I can add a link uh, to that in the show notes. But I just want to underscore here that psychological safety is not about lowering performance standards, or it's not another word for trust. It's not about being nice. There's much more to it. And also the absence of toxicity in a team is not evidence of cultural health either. Really at its core, it's a shared belief held by members of a team that the team is safe for taking interpersonal risks or that individuals uh, feel safe ultimately to take interpersonal risks. And it doesn't mean that I'm safe to do whatever I want. And I want to be clear here that I think the safety you're referring to is a safety within the mutual shared understanding of who we are as a team, how we operate together as a team, what is values aligned and what isn't. It doesn't mean an immunization from being fired uh, but only if as a last resort, the firing is then done with kindness and along with all the systems and communication habits in place, such that that undesirable event is not a surprise
0: yeah, absolutely absolute safety doesn't mean you know you can do whatever you want, right because right. Actually, by definition, that means somebody else isn't going to feel safe because <laughs> you're walking around doing whatever you want. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's that. But it isn't also just about the alignment around values. That's sort of a, a a way to it, but it's not its essence. Its essence is that, yes, you can get fired without question, but the caring that I have for you as a as a human being, doesn't go away because I'm firing you. That's right. My concern for you doesn't change because you're no longer my employee. That's right. That's the safety because I could get fired and don't feel rejected, or I could stay in the company and actually feel rejected. You know, so it's the sense of my worth being rejected is what I want to avoid at all costs. That is one version, one definition of not being safe because I can be rejected at my core worth. I'm not safe. So um, when you allow that to never arise, because that's not who we are as an organization or as a leader or as a culture, then the safety starts coming in and you see its benefits inside of business other than, you know, I'd like to uh, to speak about a similar conversation to to safety, which, you know, I had to deal with some years ago, the idea of kindness and compassion. And I'm telling you, the the number one response repeatedly was, at least it started off with, are you kidding me? This is a dog-eat-dog world, and you're trying to tell me to be kind? They'll eat my lunch if I'm kind. You don't understand business. And I said, well, actually, I do. I'm, I've been an entrepreneur. I've been a successful executive. I understand it. But kindness is not sweetness. It's not about the attitude of yahoo, let's all be nice. That's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's not what we're describing kindness is similar to the definition of safety it is you you need firmness is kind you can't not let people know where they stand that's not kind absolutely that's not safe you need the the truthful direct difficult conversations but the difference is that i'm in it with you to help you I'm not holding you apart from me and saying you don't belong to us because your sub uh, you know performance is just not who we are. I'm not rejecting you. I'm just saying, "Hey, you have a fever of 102. That means you need to stay in bed and I'll bring you, you know, chicken soup. <laughs> but you got to know you have a fever of 102." Yeah. But I'm going to be kind about how you handle your fever so it's actually there's a lot of toughness that you need because it takes radical honesty to be kind and to be able to deliver the difficult news without making the other person feel like there's something wrong with them that's that's you know high level uh, you know kindness same thing with safety same conversation i believe
1: i agree and i appreciate your use of the word kindness we now have three core values at GLOW, and each of them have three supporting key behaviors. And in terms of kindness, one of our core values is nurture kindness, whose then three key behaviors are seek clarity, call each other out and in, and venture to be vulnerable. And I want to switch gears slightly. Can you speak to the larger picture of how your book is uh, like a map for transformation?
0: So the thing about the book is there's a lot of information in it. You know, my, my colleague and co-author, Joe Luizzo is a you know renowned scientist, psychotherapist. So he brings a lot of uh, information and knowledge into the book. But the book is not about giving you more information so you could share some nice facts at the cocktail party. The book is based on a program. The program of transformation that it's based on came before the book. The purpose of the book is not to download information. The purpose of the book is to help you change to whatever degree that you're seeking to change but to show you the way for that change the path that will that will work And whatever version of it that you want to customize so that you can walk on that path, to whatever degree you want to move on it, it'll still take you further than where you are. And that further isn't to greater success. I just want to be clear about that. It's further to greater freedom inside your job, inside your business. It's further to your degree of responsibility as a human on this planet and what your team and your business can do. It's further to your... Degree of uh, finding meaning and purpose in your job in your life. It's further into integrating who you are as a human being with what you do as a you know professional. It's further in those areas, not like I now can get promoted faster. I just don't want to mislead any of your listeners to say I can you know rise up the organization faster because I read this book.
1: Yeah, I would say. In a culture where the culture values the evolution that you're referring to, I would argue that you could actually evolve quicker within that organization, whatever that means, whether it be a title mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. or more responsibility mm-hmm. or a salary increase mm-hmm. or, or, um, mm-hmm. or other mm-hmm. you know, no. yeah. specific outcomes. I'd say if, if, the, if the team values what it is that you're presenting in this book, for example, Right, Uh, you know, I I see it happen on our team, for example. Like, if you are endeavoring to do this hard work, good things will come. It may not be like you said, in accordance with, say, conventional success metrics, but it, it it will likely come in accordance with the other more sort of human interaction metrics that. Uh, are core to what we're discussing here today.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely correct. And even they can even come in the more traditional success metrics of more money, bigger job. It, can, it could do that. All I was saying is that's not the why of it. Correct. That's definitely an outcome because if you're at your peak performance, more of success will just be more uh, accessible to you and with less effort. But, but what drives it is not the fact that I want more of that. What drives it is the understanding that for me to be more of service as a human being is going to serve me better and serve me both as a leader and as, as an individual. Right. You know? in, in fact, that's a way um, one can define each of the paths, you know, and this is definitely a conversation in, in business, uh, thank God that it's a grown conversation in, in business. But one path, the traditional path, the path that I grew up, you know, becoming a successful executive and but always struggling with, I call that the egoic path. You know, that's the path that feeds my ego, because I have this confused understanding that if I have enough success, I will get to happiness. So I'm going to feed my ego to become successful because that will make me happy. But the path that we're talking about of boundless leadership is the path of service, which is sort of the complete opposite. It's the polar opposite of the egoic path is a path of service. That, it, that I'm not the only, it's not an us and them. There's only an us. And the better I make the us, the better it is for me. As opposed to the egoic path that says that the only me that can really um, not just survive but but flourish is a is an I that stands apart from the all others. So making that flip as another flip is is another fundamental um, is that is another fundamental principle of boundless leadership.
1: I've experienced in myself and others have shared with me the more that we show up in this way together, the greater the experience of flow and healthy and helpful interactions. And it just feels good. And because of that, we begin to want more of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And you bring up a very good point is that when we taste it, we want more of it. So that's, what's going to fuel it. You know that's what's going to make it grow—not a book or you know somebody pontificating about it. It's the direct experience that it's a lot more freeing and a lot more fulfilling than just trying to be the best out of the lot. Yeah, you know, and that—that that is one of the smaller yeah. flips. The—the—the the, the biggest flip, um, it, well, the biggest flip is the flip that you want to basically approach a situation, not from the kind of conditioned and uh, frankly, genetic and evolutionary uh, training of protecting ourselves for survival. You want to flip it and approach most situations by a much more expansive, safe feeling of opportunity, abundance, and therefore sharing. So you want to, flip your perspective, your fundamental perspective from one to the other. That's a big flip. You do it by going inside and not trying to change the outside world because we all know how fruitless that is. And then inside of that, there are a bunch of smaller flips. One of them that we just talked about is flipping ego for service. Uh, Another one that, you know, uh, we sort of You brought up in some of your conversation is flipping uh, process for outcome, right? We can't control the outcome, which is what we all focus on, especially in business, quarterly goals, numbers, this or that, but we re- actually in reality cannot control it. What we can control 100% is our process, how we show up, who we are when we're taking something on. You know, what What part of self-awareness and clarity are we bringing? All of that process we can uh, manage and, and control, frankly. Um, another flip, which is very powerful, especially in business, and this is one I work with. I work with all of these, but this is one that has the most immediate impact, is flipping fear uh, for compassion. You're walking into a meeting. And you're going to meet with an aggressive boss or a board member or an investor. And they're just, you know that they're aggressive and they, in your mind, don't even like you. You're going to walk in with a lot of anxiety, some fear, and you're ready to take it on to the best of your ability and, and practice and what have you. But instead of that, to flip it to compassion, understanding that individual is another lost soul, just like you, trying to be happy, thinks he knows it, but he actually doesn't and makes it up and hides it. And oops, he's not really not that different from all these other lost souls we know and have compassion for that. That meeting will change Completely. The tenor of that meeting will be something very different from what you would have experienced otherwise. So, those are some of the flips.
1: And in that moment of compassion for the other, also a reminder to practice compassion for myself, since I'm likely in that kind of situation setting in motion automatically and subconsciously a cascade of emotional responses that are designed to meet my needs in the presence of an aggressive person so changing topics slightly i'm curious what you think of the cult of busyness like for example like the addiction to being busy or uh, the, the need to appear as busy and how that relates to authenticity
0: i love the term of cult of business honestly i've never heard of it before i think it's really quite wonderful um but it's funny because I—it I, used to be a cult of busyness. It used to be when I was in business back in the '90s or late '80s. You know, um, it—you wanted, you were proud. To be busy, you're a warrior because you only have three hours sleep, or you're managing twelve projects, or you're flying around the world, and it's just what you know. Real successful people did so. There was actually there really was a cult around being that kind of individual who works hard and plays hard, right? Fortunately, a lot of that has died down. Fortunately, the trends are moving towards a little bit more sustainable practices. Or you no know, sleep matters. You, oh, I I actually get 8 hours sleep. Yahoo me. Self-care is important. I am the greatest asset in this situation for me. How do I, you know, invest in and and secure and build this asset? So, I think that there is a lot of that that has shifted, which is a good movement. However, the idea that we actually are busy because of the digital overload we don't. We no longer know how to handle that because we're so uh, people can contact us twenty four seven certainly with emails, but that's already too slow. We have Slack. We have text. So you know we're constantly have to be vigilant around seeing which email or which text is out there that's going to get us. We don't want to miss it. We can't really enjoy our vacations because, oh, my God, I have a thousand emails when I get back to work. I can't even have fun now. So this idea of being on digital overload is is no longer the cult idea that it's cool to be a warrior. But most of us don't know how to to remain comfortable and confident if we're not on top of every single piece of information and yet none of us can be on top of every single piece of information so there are obviously some practices that many business coaches can teach about priorities or time management but in this book and in this interview we're not talking about that we're talking about developing this the ability to have the confidence that you can handle that which you don't see yet. The trick is not as a leader to believe you know how to do it all. The trick as a leader is to believe that you can figure it out when you need to, because if you were to be honest about it, you've done that a thousand times already. So this cult of busyness as far as actually being too busy because there's just so much information is best addressed through the idea that you don't have to be on top of everything you just need to figure out how to solve a problem when it arises and getting your confidence on that but the cult being defined as looking a certain way is just that will that will only reinforce your false belief that you're not good enough the way you are. So how are you going to fake it? And that faking it will never leave you no matter how much you rise up the ranks. So it just isn't going to serve you. And, you know, authenticity always wins out anyway.
1: Sometimes the, 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 the desire to look busy and be busy uh, can lead to a lack of focus mm-hmm. on the very things that are actually going to move the needle.
0: Exactly. It's just you're approaching a situation with a lot of your mind energy focused on how are you going to be perceived and therefore not enough of your mind energy in how are you going to do this well. Exactly. Exactly. So you're you're kind of working against yourself. You're saying, I have so much to do, but I'm going to put 30% of my time on something that isn't going to move any of my projects. Really? That is, so why would you want to work at 70% capacity when you feel you have so much to do anyway?
1: Right. Because it feels good and decreases the likelihood that I won't be loved or safe or
0: belong. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's one other thing about this, you know, looking busy, um, this idea of inauthenticity, therefore the idea of authenticity. When, when we're able to be authentic, something really powerful happens. It allows the other people to exhale, to relax, to say, I don't have to fake it either. And at the end of the day, you want to follow the leader who makes you feel better about yourself, not the leader that is constantly beating you up, putting you down. You want to follow the leader that says it's okay to be you, not the leader that says, we have a certain you know threshold of, you know, Navy seals only in this company. So uh, you know, as a leader, it's powerful, but as a human being, it allows the other person to put down their defenses. It allows the other person to bring out their best. And that's the, you know, greatest thing you could accomplish as a leader.
1: Right. It doesn't mean that you're not asking your leader to not challenge you and to push beyond some limits because we're innovating here, for example. I think sometimes that can be confused.
0: Is- yes, absolutely. Yeah, you're correct, because you you brought up that point a few times, right, about safety, uh, about kindness, about authenticity. Um, The the bottom line is that making others better takes effort. You can't just be sweet about it. Making others better takes discipline, takes consistency, takes commitment. But doing it inside of an environment that says, I got your back, is a different environment than the one that says, you know, I'm looking to see where you're going to fail because that's my job. I, I get rid of the ones that fail. You still need to get rid of the ones that do not fit, are not performing, without question. But your approach to it doesn't have to be, that's my job. Your approach to it has to be, my job is to make you the best you can be. And if the best you can be is still not good enough for this company, then we both failed, but our heart was in it, and we part ways in a caring way. So, uh, you know, your leader, you still are the leader of the organization, and your, your loyalties are to that whole organism But you perfect the organism by working with each individual becoming their best. And hence the total becomes the best. But when the two are at odds, you know, your loyalties are kind of clear. Beautiful.
1: Yeah. It's an environment where we may be sharing with each other information that the other may not want to hear, but it's in an environment that's uh, safe, an environment where. We're learning and growing together and that we're in service of each other, Uh, but that doesn't mean we shy away from delivering and receiving information we may not want to hear or that we may not want to address.
0: Correct. Correct. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll put some real statistics to that. So, and this is in the book, um, but in communications, you know they've shown that there are three aspects of communications you know content i e words, tone, and what they call body language, what Joe and I call energy. So it turns out that in communications uh the the numbers are that seventeen percent is content, the words thirty two percent is your um tone and 51% is your body language slash energy. So you could be firing somebody or you could be promoting somebody. Those are words. It's only 17% of the communication. Where is your heart at the time? Where is your energy at the time? That's what's really being heard, not the words. Mm -hmm. And so that's the job of the leaders to focus on the 51% that is actually being received and not the 49% that is what is being said or heard. So, you know, um, back to this whole idea, whether it's safety, authenticity, kindness, you know, the words are still the words that need to communicate to get the best performance for the company. But the tonality that, or the energy is what you really need to fine-tune because that's what really is received.
1: Yeah, and in your book, I love how you speak about that concept under the empowered responsibility chapter, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know that ultimately, to get there, assumes really a deep level of comfort with our own vulnerability and authenticity, and that as leaders, we must be accountable for the subtle impact our intentions have on our behavior as well as the behavior of others. Which I love, that. right. To be constantly thinking like the way that I'm, how is the way that I'm behaving going to impact someone else? Yeah. As you said, not just verbally, but non-verbally and energetically.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a supplement uh, client and the big game in supplements is not what supplements you take, it's what supplements you assimilate that makes a difference, right? So it's not the words you're giving people is what they're hearing, what they're metabolizing, and that goes way beyond words. I love that. Was there anything else
1: you want to say about the book or the upcoming leadership program?
0: As I mentioned before, the book is based on a program we've run uh, for some years now, um, and it's a once-a-year cohort. The next one actually is in February 2022. Uh, so there you not only get the hands-on uh Not just the information, of course, but the hands on talking, but you also get the group environment that you mentioned, uh, Derek, where people are able to hear other people and sort of go on the journey together, this journey of transformation. So, um, yeah, we're very excited to have another one in a few months.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that. It's a very powerful experience. The other thing that I want to mention after the bit that you gave about your book, I want to call out too that what is powerful about the practices you provide, they're relatively short meditations and each of them differ in the middle of the meditation where you're uh, inviting the reader to work on a particular skill or competency, yeah. which I, I think yeah. it's, it's, it's really powerful and it's um, not uh, simple or basic, but it's accessible.
0: Right. I well, thank to- you for saying that. Each one is precisely matched to the quality we're building. And each one is both proven contemplatively throughout a uh, long uh, history, but also now with neuroscience of how it actually does what it's supposed to do. And therefore, you know, make the pairing so much more powerful.
1: So tell me how people can find you and the book. and more. Information yeah, so about you the- could
0: just go to uh, my website, com and you'll have access to the book learn a little bit more about the program or some of, some of my programs with individuals and and companies
1: elazar thank you so much i am passionate about this topic and i've been excited about my conversations uh with both you and dr loitzo and i highly recommend your book and uh again thank you so much for your time today
0: Oh, thank you, thank you for for having me. I, I I truly do believe that too many of us are suffering needlessly, and there's a way out, and it's not as difficult as it sounds, and it's doable. So uh, I hope at least some of some of your listeners get a little bit something out of this. It's my pleasure.
1: Thank you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at Glow. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, our Red Cub Agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.